Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I think of sarcasm as a linguistic trust fall. You know, if you wanted to sit in a chair perfectly normally, you have an ability to do that. The point of doing a trust fall is the risk that someone else might not catch you. And it creates that trust because you've taken that risk and they do. Hello, welcome to Zircon Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Before we get started today, I guess a couple of announcements. So one, I've mentioned this on I think another episode, but the comment series got a little bit delayed by some scheduling mishaps, um, and I want things to come out in a very particular sequence. So that will finish uh, in December. It is coming. I have not forgotten it, and we've got some great episodes coming. So I apologize that uh, things got a little bit delayed here in the middle. Uh, I learned a lot about how to do this, but you guys are going to like what we eventually get. So sorry for the wait. Then the other thing, uh, if you are not checking out Impeachment Explained, should be. We just had a great episode with Thomas Mann about asymmetric polarization and the way in which the Republican Party became the institution that we're seeing at these impeachment hearings, which I think is genuinely the true question here, right? The question is not, what did Donald Trump do? We actually know what he did. We've known it ever since his own White House released the call record. The question is, how did we get to Devin Nunez? Like, how did that happen? <laughs> what is he and how does the American political system work with one party functioning in this way? So if you're not checking out Impeachment Explained, you can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today, though, this is a lot of fun, this episode. Very nice break from actually impeachment. Um, I have Gretchen McCulloch on, who is the author of the wonderful book about how we talk on the Internet because Internet. This was recommended, you may remember, by Randall Monroe, the genius behind XKCD. Turn me on to the book. The book is fascinating and amazing. Um, McCulloch is also the co-host of a great podcast on linguistics called Lingthusiasm. I think I'm saying that correctly. But man, you'll hear it in this episode. She's just great at explaining things. You could listen to her all day. There's a million interesting things here about how we talk now, um, but I won't try to spoil them for you. As always, you can email me with guest ideas, feedback, whatever at Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Again, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. But here is Gretchen McCulloch. Gretchen McCulloch, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. So what does it mean to be an internet linguist? I call myself an internet linguist because on the one hand, I analyze the language of the internet. And on the other hand, I do so in a very internetish sort of way. You know, I do so for internet people in the in the pop linguistic sense. So uh, it's it's a dual role of doing linguistics of the internet, but also for people of the internet uh, to enjoy. What's the difference between doing it for people to enjoy versus doing it in the ways and methods that academia would have you do it? 
there are some academic internet linguists as well, and I greatly respect them and I cite them a lot because uh, I don't always have the the time to do as much detailed statistics and data collection as the academic side. So I really appreciate the academic uh, linguists who analyze the internet. But I also think it's a really interesting position to be in because anytime I say something about the language of the internet, I'm not saying it in front of, you know, 30 academics at a conference, half of whom may kind of not do much beyond email. Uh, I'm saying it for people who are speakers of the internet vernacular. And so if I say something that doesn't seem right to them, or doesn't seem like it accords with their intuitions or how they'd say it, I hear from them. And I think that's really interesting. And I think that actually is a good bridge to, to where your book begins, because it seems to me that you're also able to assume some knowledge, right? You're explaining things to people that they see, hear, or read in their everyday travels across digital space. So the title, the book is titled Because Internet. And I think many people who listen to the show, that will make sense. But why it makes sense is actually a little bit of a hard thing to unpack. So can you explain the because now construction more generally? Yeah. So this because X construction is a newish form of because. So historically speaking, because is used with full sentences. So because uh, I spend a lot of time on the Internet uh, or it's used with um, of phrases you have because of the Internet. Um, and the idea that you'd use because with just a single word, um, as in the because internet construction, uh, or because, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't pass in my homework because dog or something like this, um, is a newer construction that sort of came on to popular consciousness around 2012, 2013. Uh, and so as I was, you know, before, as I was kind of getting some of the ideas that, that would eventually, uh, become this book. Uh, it was something that I was talking about on the linguistics blogosphere and other linguists on the linguistics blogs were talking about. And so it was on my mind as I was writing uh, the book proposal. And then it just stuck because we we really liked how, you know, how much it summed up what was going on uh, in terms of, of Internet things. But give me your theory of why because X worked, right? Why, why does something like that, which is one of many strange uh, textual uh, approaches that you'll find on Reddit or 4chan or wherever it might have begun. Why, why, did, why did that one stick versus others? Like, what is it? Do you have a theory of why some of these innovations rise and other ones are just some weird ways somebody wrote something sometime? I think of the because X phenomenon as part of a larger uh principle of, let's say, 2010s internet varieties, since we're in retrospective mode, which is this idea of stylized verbal incoherence mirroring emotional incoherence. So let's unpack that for a sec. This idea that when you're feeling uh, strongly, whether that's angry or sad or uh, excited, or just like you have a lot of feelings going on, sometimes you uh, change the way you you write or you talk in a way that sort of mimics that incoherence. But you don't just do that haphazardly. You do that in a way that's social and that's influenced by other people around you. That's the stylized part. And you see this sort of stylization in other domains. One of the ones that I talked about in the very first chapter of Because Internet was Key Smash. So Key Smash is supposedly random typing on a keyboard, you know, your fingers are just going in any which direction. Well, like, like this, is like when people are frustrated, it's like they like brought their fists down on the keyboard. Yeah, the sort of in theory. But it's it's not the fists, and you can tell that because 
a conventional key smash or older historical key smash um, often begins with ASDF or some sort of a as the as sort of sequence um people really like how i say key smash so i try to do it a lot now <laughs> uh, <laughs> i read the audiobook myself and people keep going like i can't believe you did the key smash They're like i don't know what else i could oh my have god done. i'm reading an audiobook myself right now and it is one of the most painful things i've ever done as a human being it's a it's a weird situation because like they lock you in a recording booth for a week it's a lot of talking seven hours a day uh reading out loud <laughs> um but it was it's fun to have done because I think people who who read the audiobook feel like they they have this sort of connection with me. So many um, things are fun to have done. <laughs> many things are fun to have done. Uh, so, yeah, this this idea that so when when I people do key smash, I I surveyed some people about their their key smash practices because that's a thing that I can do as an internet linguist, uh, and they uh, most people told me that they would either delete and re-key smash or adjust a few letters if their key smash didn't look like a normal other per people's key smash. I, I, I love this. And I also felt very seen by this because <laughs> I, I have very much done editing my key smash. And I was also thinking about all the times when I've done the strange punctuation stand in for swear words. <laughs> right. And how and many times I've like gone and rewritten you know, what's really just supposed to be an exclamation of anger or frustration or whatever it might be, but ah, it doesn't quite look right. It needs another asterisk or there should probably be a money sign there. And something that is in your book more generally is there's a lot of formalism to what is meant to be informal language and also a lot of formalism to what is meant to in some way signal the exact opposite of formalism. And that's a bit of a mind bending concept. Well, I think it's a mind-bending concept to people in general, but it's not a mind-bending concept to linguists. And this is why I'm really excited to bring more linguistics into the public space, because linguists are interested in these sort of subconscious patterns that emerge from how you talk when you're not necessarily thinking about it. You know, there's there's this perception that linguists are interested in these kind of hands are rules um, that come down from on high. But the the parts that get linguists most excited are people didn't even really realize they were all behaving according to a pattern. People weren't thinking about it that much, but there actually is stuff going on. Uh, and so these subconscious patterns, I knew I was going to find them because they're found everywhere in communication, even when we think we're a million monkeys hammering away at a million typewriters uh, with Key Smash. So give me a few of your favorite subconscious patterns, whether they're from the because internet age or prior to the internet age. Like, make that a little clearer for people. Well, one that's really interesting, just to continue on that Key Smash vein for a sec, is that Key Smashing has been shifting uh, because it turns out that when you're when you're mashing away on a smartphone keyboard, you don't have your fingers on ASDF anymore. You have your fingers kind of on the middle section. So you have a lot of like or the Instagram one, which is SKSKSK. And those those kind of center two points of the keyboard, like where your thumbs naturally lie, that's where the newest wave of key smash is coming. And you can watch this coming. And I'm very proud that I predicted this coming because when I was analyzing key smash initially, uh, before smartphones were quite as much of a thing, uh, I was thinking, I, you know, these are really dependent on having your fingers on the home row. And on a soft keyboard, you don't have your fingers on, a, on the home row anymore. So that's it's it's going to change it. But it it took a bit of a delay, you know, 
after smartphones had been around for quite a while, because I think the first few years of smartphones, people were doing like a fake hardware keyboard key smash. Like I definitely remember literally like finger by finger typing A, S, D, F, J, K. Uh, and, uh, just so that it would look like the right kind of key smash. But now I think we've kind of moved on a little bit from that that sort of key smash. Um, so that one is a really interesting example of how the kind of form of our technological devices can shift uh, the way we communicate with each other. But it's not just determined by the form because we also have these sorts of social expectations of each other. So I, I want to go through some of the maybe architecture of the book before getting into some of the other examples, which is use some really interesting uh, explanations in there for how language evolves and what are the conditions under which it evolves. And so what, what do we start with? Um, you break the Internet users into three distinct waves and then different cohorts in the waves. Can you, can you give me a bit of an overview of the breakdown and why it's important? Uh, the first wave of people who who come online are your sort of early adopters, what I call old Internet people in the book. And these are uh, people who go online first before a lot of people that they know uh, in in real life, and they go online to interact with strangers, and their their social interactions are based on kind of playing with identity and finding connections with people that they wouldn't necessarily have met otherwise. And when you say playing with identity, you mean here things like pseudonyms, and you can you know nobody knows you're a dog on the internet, that kind of thing. The sort of nobody knows you're a dog part, uh, and also the pseudonyms. They do. Ha they have pseudonyms, but their pseudonyms often tend to be fairly persistent. So these are right. the kinds of people who register the same pseudonym on every single social network because they join them all really early when the pseudonyms are available, <laughs> and they register the same ones. And their internet friends follow them for you know maybe thirty years at this point by that pseudonym. And then the next wave, when the internet becomes sort of mainstream, um, so this is the late '90s, early 2000s, when everyone's going online around the same time. There are two cohorts within that. And one of them are the people who kind of go online when everyone's going online and they jump full into this internet thing as a social place. And so I call them full internet people. At the time, a lot of people made this split between digital natives and digital immigrants. I don't like that split <laughs> because that was supposed to talk about their sort of facility with technology. And it ignores that there was also this group of early adopters. So you have this group that for one of them jumps into making social interactions with friends. Um, so they are some of the early users of instant messaging, whether that's AIM or MSN Messenger uh, or various places. Those are messaging platforms primarily with your friends that you already know. And they eventually become the first cohort to be on Facebook as well. But that wasn't Facebook wasn't their first social site, but it, they were the first users of Facebook. And you also have this other group at the time who's more hesitant about this internet thing as a social space. So they use the internet as a tool. They're using email for work. Um, they're checking the weather. They're checking the news. They're check maybe booking some flights or these kinds of things. But they're not really socializing primarily online. And they eventually become later adopters of Facebook because, you know, it's the sort of online replication of their offline world and they can understand that a bit better. Uh, whereas the old internet people, some of them never even got Facebook they're, because they're online to interact with strangers. They're like, why would you do it under your real name? So almost the cut between the, the these two groups you're talking about here, not the early adopters, but the two groups of people who begun like, just using it is, were you on AIM sending the words ASL to people or not? <laughs> well, AIM is interesting because AIM is a very American phenomenon. So I like to talk about AIM and MSN Messenger in parallel because 
people in that generation were either really strongly into one or the other. In Canada, it was MSN Messenger. In Europe, it was MSN Messenger. Uh, They're like, aim, we didn't have that. So, or as Americans didn't really use MSN Messenger that much. So it's really like one of those was your local thing and you used it. But so, okay, so you have these two groups that are cut by whether or not they're using the internet to message both friends and to some degree not friends. And then the sort of internet is tool users who at least their, their initial intention was not to use it as a socializing platform. And is that really an age issue? I mean, I'm clearly, when I listen to this, I'm clearly the, the sort of first gen messaging on AIM, um, asking people age, sex, location. Well, asking people age, sex, location is kind of an old internet thing, though, because oh, yeah? a lot of the people who were using AIM as this mainstream cohort were messaging their friends from school. So you don't need to ask age sex location to like Bobby who's in your English class. Yeah, but you did both. I mean, it would constantly like you had AIM was all of your friend. Well, for me, for by your friends from school. And then I don't even remember how you were talking to people who you didn't know on it. But somehow you constantly were. Or I yeah, was. There, there was this bit of talking to people you, that, you, that you didn't know as well. But there was this kind of tension there. You weren't necessarily like forming relationships with them. You weren't necessarily sure. befriending them. It was just kind of this like weird peek into the unknown. And then you kind of retreat back. Right. Uh, whereas the older people were really kind of making friends. Uh, with strangers online. So it's not specifically an age thing. And that's that's where I think some of the the discourse, you know, goes astray and that I want to pull back to. It is an attitude thing, especially for people uh, in these first three groups, because you could really join anyone you wanted depending on your attitude. You know, if you were joining the internet to meet strangers, <laughs> joining the internet to interact with people beyond your local circumstances, joining the internet to uh, interact primarily with your friends and maybe kind of like dip your toe into the waters of strangers, but you're not trying to befriend them, um, versus joining the internet to use it as a tool, and then you kind of gradually trickle into uh, interacting with a few people that you know online, but you're not really you you have your your primary relationships already. Uh, in the offline sense, and so you're you're not looking to the internet for that. And before we get to the next groups, I actually want to signpost something so people understand why we're having some of the discussion we're having, which is for the linguist, why is it so important who people are coming online to talk to? Linguists have this concept of a founding population when you, uh, and this was a term that was borrowed from ecology by the linguist Salikoko Mufwene, uh, which is that if you look at how people talk in a given group, the first influx of arrivals in that group um, often have the most influence on how it develops later on. So the idea of the people who who come kind of come in as a group in a in a particular space, uh, whether that's a physical space or a virtual space, or you know, if you think of in the offline space, if you have like the first few people at a workplace kind of establish the office culture. And then, you know, even when the workplace gets a lot bigger, if they've established a norm of like, this is we all go drink beer on Tuesdays, uh, you can kind of keep developing those sorts of norms. And a similar thing happens with establishing linguistic norms. So some of the groups that that give us the linguistic norms of the Internet, so that early founding population of old Internet people, um, this is where the the where emoticons come from. You know, this your your smiley face, colon hyphen parenthesis, uh, and uh, some of the and the early internet acronyms like LOL and OMG and these kinds of things, those sorts of norms come from that founding population and they get adapted by this younger group that comes in and says, yeah, we're we're gonna do these and we're not gonna uh, and we're gonna, you know, take them in a slightly different direction where sometimes they can indicate irony or or sarcasm or something like that. Um, and so that sort of create some of the conditions under which people use them. 
Linguists also find that you're most susceptible to new words and new expressions and new uh, ways of saying things in the first third of your lifespan. But lifespan comes with an interesting caveat here. And that's that this lifespan is your lifespan in a given community. It's not just your natural lifespan. If you join a, a new club, the one example of this was done on beer tasting message boards. Um, so if you join a beer tasting message board, in the first third of your lifespan as a participant on a beer tasting message board, you're most likely to pick up new beer jargon. And then when you get to the later portions of your lifespan, as a member of a beer tasting discussion board, you become more like, oh, these these kids, these newbies on the beer discussion board and their new terms, I'm not using those. Get off my beer lawn. Get out of my bar. <laughs> Get out of my bar. Get out of my pub. <laughs> my craft brewery. <laughs> Get out of my craft brewery. Um, and this is true even if your lifespan on a beer tasting message board is, say, three years. In that first year, you're picking up all these new this new terminology uh, and the latter, latter two years you you're not doing as much uh, and they can actually predict uh, this study was interestingly able to predict how long someone would stay on the the beer tasting message board by how long they were still willing to pick up new jargon so if you're willing to pick up new terms for two years then you're likely to stay on for six i guess is the is the generalization there's an interesting almost life lesson here right that you you come into places and you're open to learning and you're open to absorbing and then you develop either enough comfort or maybe it's enough sense of authority that you begin trying to draw the boundaries yourself and that that might you lose that beginner's mind unless you really make an effort to keep it maybe we've just discovered the secret to eternal life and that is being willing to adopt new terms for your entire life because then you can never arrive in that last two thirds of your lifespan. Oh, right. Yes. No, if you, yes. You just keep the older you are, the more you should be saying fleek or whatever it might be. That probably even saying that is like that is how out I am. Yeah. The more you should be calling people boomers to insult them. I think that's the that's the new one. The I actually have as a question for you um, later what you think of OK Boomer. But I'm going to hold that. Why don't you tell what are the other we've not gone through all the cohorts yet. So let's. Right. Let's continue OK. Through. Let's go back to cohorts. We're still in chapter three of the book. People are really going to have to get the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the so those were some those were the waves uh, that went through the sort of early adopting and the sort of mainstream level of adoption. And then the last wave is the internet becomes part of everyday life, and people don't join it, you know, suddenly all at once. They just kind of go on gradually as their life circumstances permit. And you have two cohorts in this last wave as well. Uh, one of these are, and they're they're very age-graded. The other cohorts have mixed relationships with age. These are very age-related. One of them are people who were just too young in 1998 to be on the internet. <laughs> uh, and so they they went online, you know, as they got older, as they learned how to read and write uh, and were able to understand what was going on on the internet. Um, and uh, the... Flip side of that is the group that had really thought they were going to be technological holdouts for the rest of their life. And then eventually they realized some point after the mid 2000s or so that actually, oh, no, they needed to use the computer. <laughs> uh, and so you can kind of see how you can't really be both. Um, and so there's a lot of of digital ink spilled around sort of worrying about the youths. But I think it's also really interesting to look at these older cohorts because 
the three older cohorts, the old internet people that were early adopters, the sort of mainstream wave of what I call semi-internet people, and this re reluctant holdout wave of um, what I call pre-internet people, uh, who really have a have a lot of memory of what life was like before the internet, they all could have gotten online in like 1980. They all had this choice, or like 1992. <laughs> they all had this choice that they could have done internet stuff earlier. And so for them, it's really a question of attitude. Do they have this attitude that's very positive toward the technology? Do they have this attitude that technology is difficult and unrewarding and not something you want to do? So this attitude trickles down into how they talk online as well. Because this group that defines themselves by positive feeling towards technology is willing, at least in the first third of their lifespan, to adopt new terms. They are like, yeah, let's use the smiley faces. Yeah, let's use the acronyms. Uh, you know, here's like here this here are these internet related terms that we want to use because they think of themselves as members of this community. And the group that comes on in the sort of mainstream wave, they're willing to use a few of them that seem very mainstream. They're not they're not diving full full scale into technology, but they recognize some of them, even if they wouldn't necessarily use them. And this later group has just been trying to not pay attention to this for so many years, and it has finally caught up with them, and they're like, oh, this is the only way I'm going to see photos of my grandkid, isn't it? So <laughs> a lot of how we speak is not just determined by, you know, where you grow up and who you're exposed to and your education and these kinds of things, which are genuinely factors. But another big factor that we don't always think about is your attitudes towards something. You don't want to talk like a particular group if you don't feel like you're a member of that group. And so you don't want to talk like an internet person if you don't feel like you're an internet person. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and you don't want to talk like an internet person if you feel alienated from internet people and you've decided, oh, well, that's ruining language. But that's one of the things that you write a lot about here, that people have this um, tendency to look at the Internet and say, well, it's ruling the way we write. And you make a really interesting point that you have to think about language as having formal and informal expressions. And what the Internet is doing is reinventing or changing or transforming and then making much more visible informal modes of communications. So can, you, can you talk a little bit about that distinction and how the Internet plays into it? I like to talk about it in terms of writing versus speaking as well, because a lot of us think about speaking as, oh, you know, it's a conversation like we're having right now. You have this back and forth. Um, you have this potential for interruption. You have this sort of informality there. And then writing as this very formal like books and newspapers and sort of book-like objects or uh, school essays and this kinds of things. But if you think about speaking, there is actually a formal genre of speaking too. And it's very old. You know, some of the earliest things that we have written down, epic poems like the Iliad, the Odyssey, Beowulf, these are written versions of what were formal oral genres. And, you know, the Greeks weren't going around in their conversations and having them in perfect dexilic hexameter. I don't know how they were talking, but they weren't talking in, in verse. <laughs> um, and yet when it comes to the epic poems, they're often in this stylized verse format because it's easier to memorize a long text that way. It supports that that sort of thing. But it is a stylized sort of language compared to the normal way that people were talking at the time. So as long as we're aware of in the history of humanity, <laughs> there have been formal and informal genres of speaking. 
Uh, and we have them today, too, even though we're not necessarily reciting epic poems. Um, well, but, maybe you know, you're not. <laughs> well, you, you don't know what I do in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, we're not necessarily reciting epic poems quite as much, perhaps, as the Greeks were. Um, but uh, we do have, you know, radio, television, you know, newscasters. A newscaster hopefully doesn't go home and talk to their dog like that. You know, I've known a lot of people who've done newscasting for a long time. And my observation of them is that the longer you are in it, <laughs> the more likely it is you can't turn it off. <laughs> That is not true for literally everyone, but I've definitely there's some people who've been in that game for a long time and you see them offset or you run into them and it's just the same. They just like turn to you and they're, they're still newscasting. It's a wild, Hello, it's actually Ezra, a wild over experience. to you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's I mean, at some point it's hard to keep different parts of yourself separate anyway. I, I suppose that's true. But anyway, yeah, we do have multiple ways of talking. I think most people wouldn't talk to their boss the same way they talk to their kid. Uh Again, I hope not. Um, <laughs> maybe it's a sign you spend too much time at work if you do. <laughs> <laughs> and we're kind of familiar with the idea that, that speech has multiple varieties. And it's OK if you don't necessarily talk to everybody the same way. And, uh, you know, if you put on your sort of job interview version of yourself versus your like friends at the pub, you know, many of us have the ability to control whether we're swearing or not, depending on the, the circumstance or something like that. Um, and yet writing, there's this perception that it all needs to be the formal variety. And this hasn't been true for a lot of the history of writing either. Um, the parts that get passed down to us are often this formal variety, you know, your books and, and newspapers and so on that get archived. But if you look at people's personal letters or diaries or postcards, they do often have more informal features and they are more uh, sort of conversational and they aren't you know, when when people wrote handwritten letters, they didn't have spell check. Uh, so they do have different sorts of, of ways of writing things. And with the Internet in particular, though, you know, letter writing was a thing people did historically, but it it was never like people were doing it constantly. Every single everyone was doing it constantly every single day. Some people liked writing letters more than others. And, uh, you know, it, some people had the access to, you know, leisure time and education that made them able to, to write more letters. But People didn't write letters as much as people text now. I think that's a fair statement to make. So because we do so much writing and because so much of that writing is to a specific person or to a small number of people, and it's trying to convey our personality or convey our full selves or kind of be those be those people and send those kinds of informal messages that once we might have said on the phone or face-to-face -face in that sort of informal conversational style. It's not like making a speech. It's like just, it's like having a conversation. Uh, we want to write in that conversational informal style as well. And I think we've been developing more and more ways of doing that informal conversational style and conveying those kinds of nuances with respect to each other. So what, one thing I, and maybe this is a little bit off the topic, but something I think about a lot, you write in the book about how this has had, this has been an explosion in our ability to study use of informal language because there's just so much more of it. It's so much more visible. But as somebody who reads a lot of biographies and histories and political histories, I'm always struck by how reliant they are on the beautifully phrased flowery letters people send to each other and to some degree diary entries they write. And I think about how people are going to read biographies of uh, figures from this era in the future or just histories of this era in the future. And just going to be like, 
constant um, text messages back and forth with like winky faces. And I wonder how that's going to change our like the future's impression of us compared to when we read these highly formalized um, communications that are what survive of like past eras um, to us. Yeah, you know, I think that's an interesting question. And I think there are sort of two different directions for how you could answer it. And they kind of contradict each other. So that's fun. Uh, And one of them is that the kinds of people who had the sort of leisure time and access to to paper and ink and so on to write a lot of letters and who biographies are often written of are often the kinds of people who have access to that sort of elite education and they're, they're writing in a fancier style. Whereas if you can find letters from less educated people of the era, they're often filled with what to the modern eye looks like very creative spelling. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so it maybe doesn't sound quite as flowery. But they are. But they are. I've read a lot of Civil War histories and you have a lot of people there who weren't as educated writing back to their partners or families from from the fronts on that they're on. And there's a lot of creative spelling, but there's still a formalism. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're still trying. Things are fragmented in current communications in a way that just more long form writing pushes you towards a like a self-containment. Yeah, I think that, you know, writing more long form and people do still write, you know, blog posts or or longer emails or something, which which can can sometimes give you that additional context. Um, But I think that, you know, because we can send things really rapidly, you can have a real time conversation in writing, which is something historically that's been very difficult. Um, And so it becomes more like having access to interview tape with people. Or having access to home videos, or having access to you know the kinds of things that give you a, like an, an audio recording of a conversation where it's it's conversational. But the other thing is, is this also says something about when when we say something is formal, formality doesn't just exist as an external property of an object. Formality is constructed by our minds and our expectations, right? So what we think of as formal and what we think of as fancy is often fancy precisely because it's historical. Oh, that's interesting. So you think of those as sounding fancy because they are they sound old, and old sounds fancy. And so in another 200 or 500 years, people may look back at our things and notice that they sound old and associate that oldness with fanciness, even if they seem really slangy to us now. Uh, that fancy to they're going to love my thing. That's just an endless series during impeachment of the little emoji of the head exploding. Right. They're going to be like, <laughs> wow, those fancy emojis that they had. I can't believe they did this. They're so antique, <laughs> you know, in the way that when we read. So, you know, there are some writers who have these sorts of doodles in the margins. Um, Lewis Carroll did this, I think, and Sylvia Plath. Um in the margins of their letters and their journal entries and things like that. And they have these cute little doodles of like, here's a rabbit or here's a frog or something. And we're like, oh, how quaint and how charming. The thing that makes something quaint is it's being old. And so the things that we now think of as slang will seem, uh, you know, will seem old fashioned at some point. That's how time works. You know, something, and sorry, this is just staying on my weird little obsession with this for a moment, something that I do think about and comes up actually in a different way in your book, which is the, the the medium changes the way we write. It changes the way we think. It changes even what kinds of messages we send. And when you sit down to write a letter to somebody because you're you're working so asynchronously, 
it requires or encourages a fair amount of processing and reflection of what's going on. For a letter to feel full, for it to feel like a communication that the other side is getting something out of, you kind of have to sit and say, okay, here's what happened to me this week. Here's some sort of narrative I put it in. Here's how I felt about it. Whereas when I'm, you know, texting back and forth with my wife or whomever, it's much more in the moment. It's much more, here's like what's on my mind right now, what I'm annoyed by right now, what I just saw, check out this link. And it it's a very different kind of thought pattern. And I, I wonder how you think about that, how you think about the internet and internet communication. Is it changing the way we think? Is it changing the way we process as being so in the immediate? Does it change us or does it just reflect a different part of us that has always been exactly there in the same proportion it is now? One thing that I think that the internet does in terms of communication is that it makes us look at historic forms of communication differently. So we think of letters as being this really formal thing that people send, that you do have to sit down and write this whole thing. Um, but there was a period, especially in the sort of 1800s or so, when the mail in a big city like London would arrive six times a day. And you, if you look at, for example, the correspondence between uh, Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage about the early creation of the computer, which was a bit that I had to cut from the book for space, but is really interesting. And they're exchanging correspondence about this new computer, and their letters look like project emails. Like they have this, this historical style, but they're sending these notes back and forth to each other multiple times a day. And it is really a lot more like your colleagues from an office emailing each other. Um, there's another example. So one thing that I like to do is look at postcards because postcards are in many cases some of the closest things that we have in in handwritten format to social media as a format because they also occupy this sort of ambiguous territory between the private and the public. You know, you don't, it's not a violation of privacy to pick up a postcard and read it the same way it is to pick up someone's letter and unfold it and read it. Uh, and you kind of expect that the post delivery person might read it and these kinds of things. But they're kind of ostensibly addressed to to one particular person. And there's this letter that I came across in a used bookstore in Montreal. Uh, it's in French, but the in English, so it's from 1909. And the the postcard says, Monsieur, uh, I have sent you six postcards yesterday, and today I'm sending you again four more. I'm wondering if you've received them. That's wonderful. <laughs> Like that's just like, also I never thought and about that, amazing. but it makes total sense. You'd have to I I don't write postcards, but that you would write it so differently, knowing that anybody can read it. Right, exactly. It's a lot more like writing a tweet where maybe you you tag a particular person's name, but you know other people are going to see it. Like if you wanted to send something them something private, you could do that. So it's a very much like a did you get my text of postcards? And the brilliant thing about it is we actually have the resolution of this story from 110 years ago because the whole postcard collection from this guy in Montreal who was receiving all these postcards from correspondents around, the, around uh, well, mostly in various places in Europe. So we have a month later, another postcard in the same handwriting sent to the same person being like, Monsieur, thank you so much for the beautiful postcards that you have sent me. You know, I, I'm going to send you some more. So they were clearly like postcard buddies. This is like a thing people did. And I think about postcards and I think about them kind of like Instagram because you pick your postcard for the, you know, what's on the back, like this beautiful photo that you're going to send, that you're going to you're going to performatively put out into the world. 
And then you have the caption, which is kind of like, I was here and I saw this thing. And like, this is this is why I want to sort of remember this, this, this thing. And also some sort of wish to the other person. But it's often about like, this is a a version of a sort of travel log that I'm going to make for myself in a sort of semi-public context. And some of these early postcards that I was seeing from the early 1900s, people were sending them without a message at all. They would just put the name of the person, like the, they'd put the address and they'd put like the name of who it was from. And they wouldn't even send a message, which we don't think of now as a postcard thing. I think if you send someone a postcard, you feel like you need to send a, a big thing, but, or they would just put, you know, dear mom and dad, wish you were here name. They wouldn't put, write these particularly long messages in some cases, because I think people felt like postcards were really informal. It's so interesting. I, I as I mentioned, I'm, I'm not a big postcard writer myself, but a, a friend of mine I just learned has been sending for years and years and years postcards to two children of her closest friends. And uh, some of them were read at the wedding and at her wedding. And they were so beautiful. And the, the way they worked actually a little bit like Twitter, maybe at its best or Instagram, actually, is probably, as you say, the better the better analogy here. They were just these little momentary slices of life. They didn't need to do too much. And so they yeah. could do so much in aggregate. Right. They were not meant to try to to, to try to encapsulate everything um, in any one postcard in some ways, like like a letter sometimes can can feel like it has to. But they would just be a very quick thought, a very quick thing that just got seen, almost like they're a lot closer to text, actually. Or but kind with of like a sort sending of lyricism. someone a link. Like, yes, very I much like sending article, a link. I thought of you. Yeah, it was really beautiful. It, I found it touching in, in, in a way I had not expected. Yeah. And I think that you know, I my most of my conventions for writing postcards myself honestly come from like uh, language classes because this was like a classic task they'd ask me to do in like uh, <laughs> high school Spanish. It's like write a postcard. You've just been to Barcelona. You're, you've just arrived in Barcelona. Write a postcard to your friend describing what you've seen in Barcelona. <laughs> um, and so I I have this sort of like artificial language class voice on the top of my shoulder like my that. shoulder whenever i try to write a postcard which is you know the kind of like dear pierre i have just arrived in paris i have seen the eiffel tower and i've eaten a baguette <laughs> you know um, for some reason and this might go to my uh, association of letters with formality because uh, i i don't know i don't write them very often but whenever i see a letter i always just think of the economist letters section and i always just think in my head dear sirs <laughs> <laughs> right. So but we have these associations of letters with formality because so many other things have have grown to occupy that sort of space. Yeah, that's great. Right. Um, another thing that I read as I was, well, I read this back when I was a, you know, a teenager, but I, I reread it in when I was writing the book was so there uh, Ella Montgomery, who's best known as the author of Anne of Green Gables, also wrote uh, another series, the Emily Emily series. Uh, Emily of New Moon and and following. And this is the main character is a teenage girl in the early 1900s who has a diary. And in the second two books, large portions of her diary entries are the book itself. And the style that she writes in the diary, uh, and so Ella Montgomery as an author is somebody who kept a lot of diaries. And so I don't know if she's actually faithfully representing how teen girls in that particular year would have written, but she's probably representing at least how she as a teenager a couple decades earlier would have written. So it's at least a representation of something. And one of the things that this, you know, teenage girl in the early 1900s, 1913 or 1927 or whatever the, the precise years are, um, that this, this teenage girl in the early 1900s is doing is she is writing everything in italics. 
And her English teacher, who's kind of a grumpy old man, is criticizing her for italicizing things too much. And I think by italics, in the book it shows up as italics, because of course it's typeset. But I think what she actually means in italics from a couple stray comments is actually underlining things, because people in the handwritten context would underline things and they would multiply underline things. You have like five underlines under something. You could underline something in a different color of ink. And her English teacher is criticizing her tendency towards the italics and calling it early Victorian, meaning old-fashioned for the early 1900s. And when I think of this in the context of people criticizing, you know, the youth of today for being very dramatic or putting every putting emojis in places or these kinds of things, I'm thinking, I think that just one of the the chronic condition of being, say, a 14-year-old or a 16-year-old is feeling things very strongly. And that that has not changed. And the specific way in which we represent that, you know, it's a lot harder to represent italics in a text messages message because they don't support rich text formatting still in 2019. <laughs> uh, so we can't really use italics all the time. So you have to put them in all caps or you have to put, you know, uh, asterisks around them or you have to do other things with that. But the idea of feeling emotions very strongly and wanting to express them I think that's part of the human condition. One of the things you do so beautifully in the book is you really show what a lot of things that maybe just seem like something the kids do or a weird language thing are the, the way it is actually coming to add a lot more information to our communication, even when they're things that oftentimes I think get a little bit dismissed by people who are used to or either for their own identity reasons prize more formalized writing. So for instance, you talk about um, the use of exclamation points, all caps, the the repetition of letters as actually an effort to recreate tone of voice, which gets very lost in formalized writing. So can you talk a bit about that, that 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 tone of voice dimension? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this this also gets us back to trying to kind of put the internet in some sort of a historical context because people didn't suddenly forget everything that they'd learned offline when they started, you know, putting their fingers on a keyboard. And the quest for a way of conveying sarcasm or irony in writing is hundreds of years old. There's a proposal from a British printer in 1575 saying, what if we used a backwards question mark as a way of indicating a rhetorical question or a sarcastic or a disingenuous sarcastic question. And then there are proposals every century thereafter for some other kind of ironic or sarcastic punctuation mark. Rousseau had one. Uh, there are some from the, the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, several in the 1900s and the and the early 2000s. Uh, somebody tried to patent one and like sell it to people for two bucks, which just really doesn't seem like it's going to catch on. There's this awareness for you know, almost 500 years <laughs> that this was something that we were lacking and that you could you could misread tone of voice in, in writing and this was uh, something that 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 people found to be a problem. And yet the versions that have actually caught on have not been so much new symbols because in an era of printing presses and Unicode encoding the symbols that you're able to write on your device, it's really hard to get sort of a grassroots new symbol up because you need so many permissions from authorities to do it. But what's actually caught on instead is a repurposing of existing symbols and especially playing with existing symbols of either authority uh, or excitement or sincerity or positivity. Because 
It turns out, after thinking about this for quite a while, I finally realized that there was probably a sarcasm literature and I should actually read it. So that's what I did. <laughs> and it turns out that the sarcasm literature already knew this, uh, and I had just re-engineered it myself from first principles, uh, which is that the point of sarcasm is conveying a double meaning in a way that one could misinterpret. If you don't have that risk, it's not sarcasm. Because if you wanted to be completely lucid with your intentions, we already have a really good tool for that, and it's called not being sarcastic. <laughs> That's interesting. I never thought about part of the point of sarcasm as actually being the risk of misreading. Right. So I think of sarcasm as a linguistic trust fall. You know, if you wanted to sit in a chair perfectly normally, you have an ability to do that. The point of doing a trust fall is the risk that someone else might not catch you. And it creates that trust because you've taken that risk and they do. And so if you just have one symbol that unambiguously conveys that something is sarcastic, you might as well just not be sarcastic. The thing that's actually worked is to repurpose a symbol that could convey authority. So um, things like using scare quotes or using initial capitals. So if you say, well, that's a very important result, those initial capitals are going to convey that sense of sarcasm, um, even though initial capitals often convey, you know, this is the name of an organization or something like that, which is a symbol of authority. But because this isn't actually a real uh, organization or a real, a real name of something, then it's conveying a sort of ironic uh, thing there, or the ironic use of TM to convey that sort of ironic authority. So you can do ironic authority, and then you can also do ironic sincerity or ironic enthusiasm. Uh, so this is things like the tilde, uh, which is used especially with the uh, with the asterisks as a sort of like, I'm very excited about this, like, here's a song lyric I like, or like, here's this fun thing. But if you put it with something that really no one should really expect you to be excited about like time to file my taxes <laughs> uh and you put you know this excited sort of tone around it or like you know like that's that's very on brand and you know that you're not someone who talks sincerely about about branding or something like that then it creates this note of dissonance in people's minds of i know this person can't possibly have actually been excited about this and yet they're using this signal of excitement so that resolves into irony if the person has adequate context to know that you couldn't have meant that sincerely. And if this person has this knowledge that these symbols are being used to create this sort of added emotional layer. And it is a risk, but the excitement about it is how, like a trust fall, taking that risk and having it succeed can make you feel like you've really understood each other at a deeper level because you've you've both had this same sort of web of complex attitudes towards something rather than just this very surface level communication. One of the interesting things there to me is I often see people taking that trust fall and it is succeeding and succeeding and succeeding. And then at the same time as it's succeeding, it begins failing catastrophically. And so you'll have a lot of people who over time, I see this a lot on Twitter, but it's not the only place it happens. They're talking to a community they understand and that understands them. And they're talking in a certain way with a certain sense of irony, a certain sense of shared reference points. And it's all fine until then they get a bigger job or they get into a fight with somebody and people begin looking back through old tweets and then send those older things, those older trust falls shooting out into new communities who aren't going to understand them. And you, you talk a bit in the book about how this 
risk of context collapse is moving a lot of people towards things like Instagram stories and Snapchat. But for a lot of public or semi-public figures, they can't, they, they want to keep having big audiences, but at the same time, they're speaking to particular communities. And there just seems to me to be a lot of constant fighting and friction based on um, people trying to do a trust fall that is working for them in their community and is building their community. But then it gets like ricocheted out from people who either they didn't understand what was happening or they legitimately did not want to catch them. And so we're weaponizing this, um, we- weaponizing this yeah, against it's, them. Yeah, it, it's a thing that happens. <laughs> I don't, uh, you know, I don't think I have a solution uh, because, you know, there are things that you can say in a particular community uh, that everyone in the community has the un- the context to understand and that outside of that community you wouldn't say. You know, there are jokes that I can make with my friends that I'm not going to make on the radio. Uh, and yet the ability for things to, you know, be written down and... I think it's something that we're still getting used to for because when you say something in speech, speech vanishes when it's said. Sometimes it gets recorded, but it's still pretty rare that it gets recorded, especially the more informal varieties. And so we're used to this idea that it kind of gets, it decays into memory, it vanishes into the air. And even if someone can remember what you said, they aren't necessarily remembering exactly what you said or how you said it. Said it. So you can kind of say, well, they they didn't remember it exactly how I said it. And here's, here's what I actually think I said. And both of you have this sort of valuable human memory. Uh, whereas when the informal variety gets written down and people can potentially, you know, take screenshots or share uh, screenshots of text messages or leaked text messages or, uh, you know, take you know, tweets that people sometimes think of as sort of ephemeral and I'm participating in this thing. I know some people who are setting their tweets to auto delete after 30 days or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do that. I, as a, as a person who likes, you know, analyzing like the history of the internet, I'm like, no, this data, it's all gone. <laughs> uh, Can't let you historians and linguists just be <laughs> mining my mistakes forever. <laughs> the mistakes are interesting. <laughs> they provide a window into your subconscious. Um, but, you know, it is it is one way of saying, uh, you know, this stuff that I was saying was intended to be ephemeral and I wasn't I wasn't planning on uh, having having lots of people engage with it. Uh, and I don't think it's something that we've we've completely figured out at this point. To go back to this question of tone of voice for a minute, why, if I have the unbelievable audacity to end a sentence on the Internet with a period, does it seem like I am be- about to divorce my wife or end a friendship or estrange myself from my family or like I will actually find myself rewriting emails so I can put some stuff with periods in between all the exclamation points I've used so I don't sound so much like a 13 year old. But but what happened that periods became so unusable in informal communication? It's this it's this beautifully complex story and it it fits into this discussion of of double meaning and things taking on additional connotations when new things arise. Because in a paper-written context, the period is this very efficient way of demarcating between, you know, one thought and the next. And yet when it comes to electronic communication, especially the conversational style, the most efficient way of demarcating between one thought and the next is the line break or the message break, because you've got to send that text anyway. And so each text is kind of its own thought or, or mini thought. Um, and so at that point, you have the ability for the period in the text messaging context to take on additional connotations because it's no longer this sort of default unremarkable behavior. It's something additional that you're doing that you don't have to do. And so anything that you're doing that's extra has the potential to take on additional meaning. And the question is just where it goes looking for that additional meaning. 
And where the period found its additional meaning is in its association with, you know, formal sentences and also with a certain sort of intonation. So if you're, especially if you're a, you know, newscaster or something like this, you're going to say your sentences with a sort of downwards curving intonation at the end of each one. So you're going to say, and now over to the weather. And you're going to let your voice fall at the end of that. And it's a very, so that's a very period sort of intonation. And so that, the kind of downwards intonation, the association with formality, gives the period this particular tone that it's read in, and also this kind of association with solemnity and seriousness. So the linguist Tyler Snublin did a study of his own, tens of thousands of his own text messages, and he found that it wasn't that people had stopped using the period. But what was actually the case is that they were using the period more in longer and more serious sentences, things that contained words like feels and bad, and less in shorter and less serious text messages that contained words like okay and good and things like that. And so if you say something like, I'm so sorry for your loss, period, that's serious, that's formal. If you say, I'm so sorry for your loss, if you say it with that downwards intonation, that makes you seem more sincere. That one's not a problem. <laughs> but the tension arises when the period is combined with a positive message. So if you're sending someone a message like sounds good or sounds great, and yet you have your sort of visual or typographical tone of voice um, with that downwards intonation, sounds good, sounds great, okay, the computation of a positive message and a serious punctuation is what results in an interpretation of passive aggression, just like something can result in an interpretation of irony or, or sarcasm or something like that. <laughs> so it's a, it's a complicated story, but it's more nuanced than period always bad. Uh, it's the right. period is serious and it's formal. And in some contexts, like periods in emails, you know, my book is filled with periods and I'm not being sarcastic at the reader constantly, probably, maybe. Um, <laughs> you know, the it's not that you the, the period is suddenly gone. It's that there's a specific context where you say to someone like, OK, and they go like, really? That was a very short message. And yet you bothered to put a period on it. What, what were you doing with that? Let me ask you about the other side of that, which is. As you say, for, for messages that are positive, the way the language has evolved, uh, an exclamation point just feels much more natural. And yet, I've asked other people about this, and I've seen other people write about it. It somehow feels that while it would be completely reasonable for me to send a message full of periods where every sentence ended in a period, if it was not going to make me sound mean, um, to send a message that is full of exclamation points somehow makes you seem unserious, uh, ridiculous, overly enthusiastic. Why Why do we feel that we have to apportion out our exclamation points so carefully, even though they've become, in some ways, the almost default punctuation mark of the internet? Yeah, the I think of the exclamation mark, and this has been uh, observed since, there's a study in 2004 about this, so this isn't a new internet phenomenon, but I think it is a more internet phenomenon. I think of the exclamation mark as often serving the sort of function of a polite social smile, so if you're cheerful and enthusiastic to be sending someone an email, or at least you're pretending that you are, then you're also being sincere about it. So they're often this sort of sincerity marker. Uh, it's kind of like you're sort of like a Walmart greeter smile, like have a nice day. And you don't necessarily mean that smile, but it serves as a social lubricant uh, for everyone to pretend that you mean that smile. I know a lot of people who edit some of the exclamation marks out of their emails. And 
one part of me wonders if in 20 years we'll just have given up and we'll be putting exclamation marks in every sentence because clearly we're trending in that direction. Clearly a whole bunch of people actually do instinctively put an exclamation mark in every sentence in their email. So maybe eventually we'll stop pretending to ourselves and each other that we don't do this uh, is one way that I could see the future going. And another way that I could see that going is sort of balancing the tension between sincerity and cheerfulness, but also a certain level of seriousness or a certain level of formality. Because people do often use sort of stock social phrases in emails, you know, looking forward to hearing from you or like just circling back or these kinds of phrases that get used, not necessarily because, you know, you thought of them and thought that they were the, the best thing ever, but because you've seen it in other emails and you're like, yeah, this will accomplish what I've accomplished. And it'll also signal that I'm a person who knows how to send a business email. So I wonder if this sort of this sort of tension, you know, an email is a more conservative genre, especially in the business email context, uh, because you're often not emailing with people who you would voluntarily communicate with if you weren't being paid. So you're not necessarily being as unpinned uh, as you would be with your friends who you've chosen to talk to. Yeah, that I mean. I'm not, if you're not paying me, I'm not emailing anybody. <laughs> right. right? Like, this isn't, this isn't you've got mail. This isn't like, oh, emails. I can talk to people via the internet. You're like, I have other ways of talking to people via the internet. Uh, email is, you know, uh, the emails where I put the people that I'm less excited to talk to. <laughs> Let's talk about emoji because you have a, a great chapter about how what emojis are actually doing is reconstructing the capacity to gesture. What does that yeah. mean? Yeah. I spent a long time, uh, looking at emoji and trying to understand how people are actually using them in ways that are sort of divorced from the hype around emoji, which I think is often a lot more about people seeing a whole bunch of little pictures and kind of assuming this is what one could do with them. And yet when you look at the data, that wasn't what showed up. And so what what I've seen in the data is that, first of all, the most popular emoji are the faces and the hands and the hearts. And secondly, if you look at which sequences of emoji are popular, you get a ton of repetition, straight up repetition, you know, a whole bunch of face with tears of joy or like thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up, or maybe a little bit of kind of complex repetition. So you have like the kiss face and then like the kiss, you know, lipstick print and then the kiss face again in the lipstick print, which is kind of, you know, not completely repetitive, but it's still pretty much repetition. So I was writing, you know, various sort of lists of gestures that were analogous with emoji. And then the co-host of my podcast, Lauren Gaughan, who was also a good friend and was, you know, uh, <laughs> listening to my, my complaints about the book. And she said, do you want to like send me this chapter and I can read it? And I said, sure, I have no idea what I'm doing anymore. And she put a comment in the margins that said, you know, there's a name for this sort of gesture in the literature. They're called emblems. And I did not know this because I had not done much with the gesture literature uh, at this point. And so I said, wait, hold on a second. Like, let me look this up. Can you, what can, what can you send me that I can read about gesture so I can understand how what's going on here? And it turns out that the gesture literature makes this distinction between gestures that have conventional names and gestures that don't have conventional names. So you don't have to be able to see me to know what a thumbs up is. You know what a thumbs up is. Any speaker of English can be expected to know what a thumbs up is uh, or a wink or a shrug or something like that. These are words. You know what that looks like. And yet on the flip side, if you were to describe the path by which you got here today, you got up, you went to the, you know, went to the kitchen, you left your apartment, you went down here, you went down that street, you went over that street. 
uh, you you know got over there, and you're sort of gesturing in various different directions to do that. But those gestures probably don't have specific names. Maybe there's a little bit of pointing involved, but there's often just sort of a, you know, various, and you could do it with various different shapes of hand. It wouldn't make much difference. And what I noticed was, uh, and what uh, Lauren Gaughan and I noticed together, because she has more of this sort of gesture background, uh, is that you can look at how people use emojis and there's a similar sort of split. And this is that there are some emoji that have this very specific sort of communicative context that they're used in, and they affect the meaning of the words around them. So if I say something like, good job, with a thumbs up, whether that's an emoji or a gesture, that reinforces the positive message. Whereas if I say, good job, with the middle finger, now that's undermining this message. And the words are the same, but this gesture, and these are the nameable gestures, influences the context in which it's interpreted. Or if I say good job with a shrug, again, that's yet a third sort of message overall, even though the literal words are the same. Why do you say these are gestures as opposed to tone of voice, right? When I put a winky face, which I put on everything all the time, in a way what I'm saying is, you know, don't take it too seriously, right? My mood is kind of light here. Why is that a gesture, not a tone of voice? In some cases, gestures and tones of voice can accomplish sort of similar pragmatic functions. You know, like they can say, don't take this too seriously. But what I'm interested in is sort of drilling down and being more precise about what we mean when something is a gesture, when something is tone of voice, and not just saying like, this influences how people interpret it. Sure, it does. Both of them do. But can we find direct, specific tone of voice correlates? So if a period corresponds to downwards intonation, or an exclamation mark corresponds to sort of like flat rising intonation, or a question mark corresponds to a more sharp rising intonation. Those are specific features of tone of voice, right? That's not just tone of voice as a sort of general concept. And the same thing with emoji as gesture, the direct correlates that you can find, first of all, many emoji directly represent gesture, so that's nice, like the wink as a physical action is a very similar meaning to what the wink as an emoji conveys. So why not say that the physical action and the emoji map onto each other rather than introduce some sort of tone of voice? Like, which tone of voice does it correspond to? You know, both both tone of voice and gesture are, you know, can add this sort of additional level of meaning. But the question is, like, which... I want to get more precise about that because people have been asserting that tone of voice and gesture are difficult to convey on the internet and are conveyed by punctuation and emoji for decades now. Well, my question is, which ones specifically? And when you do that, it seems like the most natural split is that punctuation and typographic cues generally have specific correlates in the tone of voice domain, and emoji, GIFs, emoticons, and other sorts of visual cues generally have the most specific correlates in the gestural domain. There's a little bit of overlap, but it's not that big, actually. And so it's one way to think about some of this that when we are talking to each other, if you and I were in a room talking to each other, which we're not right now, there would be, in addition to the actual words we're saying, you know, if you think about it as a pipe of information in any conversation, just a huge amount of information we're getting from each other by not just tone of voice, but, you know, facial expressions and facial micro expressions, how we're holding our bodies, what kind of gestures we're making, you know, even how we're clothed. I mean, all kinds of things that some of them we probably recognize consciously, some of them we don't, but there's a lot of information coming through. And then as you begin bringing communication down to more and more narrowed spaces. So, you know, writing a letter, writing an email, et cetera, you know, even doing a podcast where I can't see you, we're losing a lot of information, right? Like at, at every point, you're cutting that pipe a lot. 
And that what's happening is we got pretty small is people are finding ways to widen it back out. Now, maybe they're cruder than what we have in person, but emojis, caps lock, finger mash, et cetera, we're finding ways to add in these sort of non-word pieces of information that help us understand what the other person is saying, but that, you know, over time we lost a lot of as we went down to to pure written text. Right. I think that that is exactly what's happening. And one of the complaints that I see from older generations of people online, especially the ones that don't spend as much time in an internet-mediated social context, uh, is that, oh, well, writing is just sort of fundamentally incapable of conveying these sorts of tone of voice. Writing is just fundamentally incapable of conveying sarcasm. And I don't hear this complaint from younger people and from people who are more online. What I hear from them is, of course it can convey it. I'm conveying it all the time. These are things that I am perfectly capable of conveying. And if you don't think it's possible to convey it, that's a bunch of signals that you're missing. It's not that it's impossible because we figured out a way to do that. And I think that's very impressive. I also think that it's partially something about the nature of the digital medium, because in a letter context, especially in a handwritten letter context, you could infer things about someone's, say, emotional state based on their handwriting. So maybe their handwriting is getting messier. Maybe their handwriting is getting, well, there are more spaces between the letters, or there are fewer spaces between the letters. You could infer things about their emotional state based on how they were writing something, especially if you knew someone. And that's even a cue that we don't have anymore. So even that sort of written cue of here's how I'm writing this thing, or I'm I'm putting lots of swirls and curlicues, maybe I'm in a fancy mood. That's not something we have. And so we're really, you know, repurposing and taking advantage of the resources at our disposal, whether they're emojis or emoticons or punctuation cues or these kinds of things, because we want to fully convey our emotional range and because we want to have people read the message in the way that we intended it to be read. It seems to me that one way you could summarize some of what you were saying there, particularly at the beginning in that hypothetical conversation, is simply OK Boomer, which is a nice circling back to what do you think of what, what do you think of OK Boomer? What do you think when you see OK Boomer? What I hear from a lot of uh, younger people who, you know, read my book or read some of the things that I've written and say, wow, I feel really seen by this. Like, I feel like you've you've understood this. And what I hear from them is a, a wish and a desire to connect more strongly and more deeply to the older people in their lives. Because So there's a risk when you go and explain the youths uh, that the youths don't actually want to be explained, you know, that you you killed the meme by explaining it to the older people, right? And that's, that's a, like my business model. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is that's basically what Vox does, right? At least sometimes, yes. I mean, there's a big part, there's a part of our work that's just like, yeah, that this is what people meant by the joke. Yeah, here, here's the joke. This is why it's funny. And like, oh, great. Now it's not funny anymore to the original people who are making it. Um, and so this is a risk when it comes to doing linguistics as well. I've had some people say, if I've written an analysis of a meme or something, like, great, okay, the meme isn't cool now because like now the linguists are on. I'm like, okay, well, sorry. Uh, the, but I don't hear this. Uh, as much when I'm explaining things like text messaging practices. What I hear is people saying, I'm going to make my dad read your book, or I'm going to make my mom read your book, or my boss read your book, because I wish they understood how to communicate better with me. Because I want to have this communication with them, and their inability to realize that they sound pissed off at me all the time, and I don't think they're actually pissed off, but it's really hard not to see that because that's what all my friends would be doing if they were pissed off. 
what I hear from people is that they want that deeper connection and they want everybody to be capable of conveying tone of voice and gesture in writing because they there is this additional sense of richness and connection when you do have that shared sense of norms. Uh, and so I think people want to be connecting with people of other generations from them. It's when you feel like those responses are rebuffed that maybe you give up, give up and say, okay, boomer. See, I, 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 you would all know all this much better than I do, but I read it in some ways the opposite way. I mean, it seems to me that online and particularly on social media, there's a huge amount of value in policing the boundaries of your community. In parts, so you can have those trust falls. In parts, so you can be understood. And, and also in part because social media turns out to not be just social. It turns out to be both inclusionary and exclusionary. It's like we're all in high school forever now. And the the rise of OK Boomer seems to me to be just part of this way that it's just really good to be able to shorthand who your in-group is and who your out-group is. And when I see the OK Boomer thing, um, it's one of many things on the Internet that strike me as people often don't want to be understood. They don't want to be legible across every boundary. What they want is to be in places they feel safe and to be able to talk to the people who understand them and to be able to express their frustration with the people who don't or the people who they feel have mucked things up for them. Like, I get the the boomers. And I think the secret of OK Boomers is often like it's like aimed at Gen Xers and elder millennials. But I get the I get the frustration people have when they get OK Boomered. But on the other hand, it just seems to me part of like what you're really saying is like you're not at my lunch table. And, you know, I think I think it can be true. I think both of those things can be true in the sense of, you know, I've tried to explain this to you. You weren't able to hear this explanation. So now I've given up and you're not going to be part of my group, which that's life, (laughs) (laughs) which is which is a thing that can happen. You know, Uh, I'm I I, I hope to, you know, try to foster more of these these conversations. I have had people say, oh, I'm you know, I'm going to stop using the period now that I read your book. And I'm like, like, you don't have to. You know, one thing that I also hope is that by turning this analytical lens that we often focus too much on young people onto older people and their practices, I can also reassure people who do have relatives that text them with so many periods that they aren't actually mad at them. I think that's a great place to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we always used to end, which is what are three books you read that you'd recommend to the audience? Uh, One book that really influenced my thinking for writing Because Internet is Dana Boyd's It's Complicated, The Social Lives of Networked Teens. Dana Boyd, well, she's the one that coined the term context collapse, which we were talking about earlier. And she has this very detailed ethnography of a whole bunch of teens and how they use social media. She traveled around the U.S. and and interviewed people about their social media practices. And she did it for a number of years. So it sort of spans all the way from the MySpace to the Instagram generation. And what I admire about uh, Boyd so much is that she really, you know, analyzes and takes young people for who they are and takes them very seriously and has this tone that, you know, explains things, but does so in a very sort of illuminating sort of way and doesn't talk down to people or trivialize their concerns or devolve into moral panics or these kinds of things. And it was one of my big inspirations for trying to figure out the tone of Because Internet, because I didn't want to sort of stoke these moral panics. And so reading It's Complicated was a really a big influencer for for how I approached that task of, you know, trying to to bridge things between different generations. The second book that I would say 
uh, is a is a more recent book, and it's You Look Like a Thing and I Love You by Janelle Shane. It, it's, a, it's a very funny book about AI and where it's going and how to, to deal with it. People may know Janelle Shane as a person who uh, posts these hilarious AI experiments on her Twitter and on her blog, where she'll get AI to invent, say, colors or uh, you know, ice cream flavors or uh, you know, recipes for cake or these kinds of things, and the AI will do a hilariously bad job. So Shane takes these very sort of serious topics, like you know, using AI to help with self-driving cars or something, and illuminates the problems with AI in a very funny and very entertaining sort of way, because it's really clear when an AI has failed to generate a convincing ice cream flavor, and yet this can help us understand why it's dangerous to trust AI with driving cars. Uh, and so it's a really co brilliant combination of the sort of serious and the mundane. And the third book that I really, I've really been enjoying is This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal Elmatar and Max Gladstone. And this is a short novella, it's fiction, about dueling time agents uh, who are both trying to get, you know, go back and alter the timeline to try to create their own versions of the future. And they end up in a correspondence with each other. So it's told through their letters with each other. And the premise is fine. The premise is very interesting. But what really sells this book for me is the writing and how the writing is really sharp and really economical and really beautiful. I've read it three times. It only came out a couple months ago. And I keep rereading it because every time I notice something different, it's got these layers of cultural depth. It's got these layers of, of writing. I had to pause and look some words up when I was reading it, which is not something that I normally get to do with fiction written in the 2010s. Uh, so that was very exciting. Uh, and it, but it doesn't, it doesn't wear that knowledge heavily. It wears it really lightly. It's just a, sort of a delight to keep uh, diving deeper into that world. Gretchen McCulloch, author of Because Internet. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Gretchen McCulloch for being here. Uh, that was a lot of fun. and <laughs> Definitely made me think differently about a bunch of the things I write. Um, thank you to all of you for being here. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a second and it really does help. Or send the show to a friend. Um, with a little note about why they will like it with an exclamation point because a period and nobody's going to listen. Uh, I appreciate it if you do either. It always means a lot to me. Thank you to Trey Schultz for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production and you can always reach me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Vox.com.